Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Good afternoon and welcome to the new episode of the FEPS Talk. Today, we are extremely privileged to have with us Professor Tariq Abuchadi, who is Associate Professor in the European Union and Comparative Union Politics at Nuffield College, who has an incredible academic career leading him through the different European universities, starting from the PhD at the Humboldt University in Berlin and then professorship at the University of Zurich. Uh, who is a trendsetter, I would say. So those of you who haven't yet checked uh, his uh, profile and his podcast, please do click in the meantime for the transformation of the European politics. And in the meantime, we are here today with him to ask him some of the most pertinent questions about political landscape in Europe. Tariq, really great to have you with us again. Thank you for having me. Look, a uh, lot have been uh, said about the crisis of trans- uh, traditional parties, uh, the volatility of voters, uh, the difficulties uh, that uh, political families such as progressives are facing. You've done incredibly a lot of uh, research regarding the issues. Is that still the case that we can use these labels to describe the contemporary situation? Yes, I think some of the labels we can certainly still use or have even some of these phenomena have become stronger in in the past year. I think it's fair to speak of a crisis of traditional political parties, although, of course, this is something that people have been talking about for probably the last 50 years. So I guess we have to be a bit more precise about what what, what exactly it is that we're, we're talking about. Certainly, if we look at the vote shares of the traditional party families that we know, Christian Democrats, Social Democrats, Conservatives, then we've seen a um, decline of their vote shares in the past years. While it was very often normal that these two party families would somehow rotate in government, would either be one or the other, sometimes with with so-called grand coalitions, Um, this is this has changed, right? We have a lot of new parties that have made it into parliaments. We have new party families that have made it into government um, and have really appended these um, these traditional party systems and dissertations of these parties in, in, in government. If we then stick to the issue that you say is uh, half a century new, so the crisis of uh, traditional uh, parties, um, of course, uh, this pendulum used to be switching indeed between the conservative Christian Democrats and social Democrats. But it doesn't look that the odds for Christian Democrats at the moment in Europe are that good, are they? No, it's true that because we have seen the success of other new party families, life has become much harder um, for for social democrats and Christian democrats as well. Um, so because we have the the success of a most importantly radical right parties that have become the biggest challenger for these Christian democratic parties. Also, in some countries, we have liberal parties that have rebranded themselves a little bit. If you think of the Dutch uh, VVD or the, the Danish liberals that have become, in a way, the um, the main force on the mainstream right, all of this is life made very difficult um, for Christian democratic parties. And um, even the last bastion, thinking of the um, the German CDU, CSU, and also the Austrian, uh, Euro- the Austrian People's Party, um, they are facing hard times at the moment. So life really doesn't look so great for Christian Democrats in, in Europe at the moment. 
So let's talk for a moment about, indeed, the competition on the right, uh, because you've mentioned the new parties. Some of them uh, are not that new. Some of them are rebranded. But there is a strong push from the right of what used to be center right to grow. Uh, we see some of those movements coming into the government uh, as well. Uh, that provides, of course, a question about uh, what could be the trajectory of developments for Europe. So to better understand this phenomena, uh, where does the new impetus come from, actually? Mm. I guess we can distinguish different phases of this competition on the right. That if we look at the, the 1990s, then a typical question in political science was, why is there a successful radical right party in these countries, but none in other countries? And um, that was, that was the describes, I guess, the, the time of the 1990s when the question was really, where can we see an established radical right party? This has fundamentally changed. And if you look at Western Europe and also beyond, um, the radical right is basically an established actor. That means they have several seats in parliament, um, and have become reelected in elections in, in, in nearly all of these countries. So the radical right is, has become an established force. But now this has even gone beyond this, right? I would say this is the, the period of the 2000s, 2010s, um, when the radical right became established and when um, in some countries they joined coalitions. But now if we see that the radical right is overtaking established mainstream right parties as the main force in the right in quite a couple of countries. Italy, of course, is the most recent ex example that's very visible. France is the other very visible example of this. Um, but also in Sweden um, and, and in other countries, we at least see this, this competition increasing. So now the question isn't anymore, is the radical right becoming established? But the, the question really is, where is the radical right overtaking conservative and Christian democratic parties as the main force of the right? And where is it uh, overtaking? Uh, what would be the reasons, uh, you'd say? A typical political scientist answers, of course, we, we can't pin down one reason for this for this development. Um, we have to look at political supply and political demand a little bit. Political demand in, in, in the sense that what do people want from politics? Um, and here, the, the so-called refugee crisis has played a fundamental role in shaping how people think about politics and what they want and of course the politicization of immigration but also the frames that have been associated with this crisis idea um have really um helped the radical right mo mobilize if you want to properly understand the appeal of the radical right we probably have to go back to 9-11 which was an a, a moment um that has really shaped how people in in, in the west in, in quotation marks uh, the, the media, political elites, um, general, the general population have started thinking about immigration, especially the idea of Islam as a threat. And many, many things, many, many narratives that, that, that we have right now really go back to this. And this has fueled uh, this, this, the support and the demand for the radical right. A second thing that then we have seen is that as the radical right became more successful, many established political actors, political parties on the right, but also on the left in social democratic parties, really thought they had to adjust their position toward the radical right. They had to become more critical of immigration and that to accommodate the radical right um, because they thought this is how they can win back voters. What we know by now um, there's quite a bit of evidence on this now, I would say, is that doing this actually strengthened the radical right. Um, it, it, it normalizes 
their rhetoric, it legitimizes them as political actors. And because of this, how mainstream parties have reacted to the success of the rhetoric right has very likely also contributed to this increasing success. Um, and now then, um, this is, this was helped them to, to really become this main force on the right. Yeah, in the, within the lecture that you've given uh, for FAPS within the Next Left Research Programme, uh, you've sort of discarded uh, the idea that there would be an influx of the voters moving from the social democracy to the radical uh, right. I think for a very long time, this has been uh, uh, something, a hypothesis, that social democrats lived by hoping to win this electorate that has been very often described as the lost working class. Now, your research uh, shows a very different tendency, that there is no one-to-one influx, if you want. Mm -hmm. Yes, there's a very popular idea that um, today's radical right voters are, to a large degree, former social democrats. And this idea is fueled by um, an, an, an observation that a significant share of radical right supporters are working class voters. And if we think of working class voters, we think of social democrats. Um, also, there's evidence that at the district level, we see a correlation of where social democrats used to be strong. Um, there, we also see stronger radical right parties. And everyone who has had an election in their country in the last five years has certainly read a report or two in a newspaper where some journalist goes to one of these towns and talks to three people and say, oh, these are those former social democrats um, that now vote for the radical right. What we find if we actually empirically investigate this is that only very few people have shifted from social democratic parties to the radical right. So that's what in social sciences we call an ecological fallacy, right? Just because there's a correlation at this district level, and doesn't mean that's actually the people at the individual level who switched from the social democrats um, to the radical right. This is something that we've investigated in a lot of countries with very good data, um, and there's just very little support for this. Of course, there are some, right? And there's a bit of variation between countries. Um, but especially it can't, it can't explain the crisis of social democratic parties because especially compared to how many people vote, voted social democrats, only a small share has left for the radical right. What the radical right has managed is A, to, uh, mobilize people who di didn't vote before, who really didn't feel a, a stronger party attachment. And B, they, um, won over former conservative voters um, who voted conservative, Christian Democrat, even for some liberal parties. And um, these are the, the much, much more um, the voters that today support the radical right. That said, though, social Democrats sense a particular obligation to fight the right-wing radicals. I mean, uh, Stefan Leuven uh, said it in his acceptance speech at the Party of European Socialist Congress in the fall. Uh, several prime ministers underlined that the uh, social democratic mission is to fight right-wing radicalism, extremism, extremist tendencies as the ones undermining democracy. So how would you say strategically how social democrats should in fact position themselves knowing that this is not about the transfer of the electorate, it's about something else? So I, I would agree that, that that this is should be the goal of social democratic parties. Um, it should be the, that should be the goal of all established democratic forces. Um, but if, focusing on social democrats, well, they even if, if, if Levin says this is the goal of social democrats, how they've actually de facto behaved in the, uh, in, in, in the last 20 years is that they too have taken up some of the radical rights positions, their rhetoric. They have very often talked about the, the 
justified grievances that people have and that, that lead them to, to voting for the radical right. Um, Social Democrats have not been very outspoken in terms of um, defending a humanitarian approach to refugees, especially. Social Democrats for a long time really thought um, they preferred to not talk about immigration at all. And when they did, um, they very often did it through a frame of security. Um, they very much thought of um, an, an electorate that wasn't wasn't really theirs either. And so they they took some you know meddling through position on on these issues but are very often really played into the same crime authoritarian nationalist frame um that has helped the radical right so much so if if, if they the, the proofs in the pudding right so if if they think they are the force that should be fighting the radical right then i think we need to expect a little bit more from social democrats in actually doing that and in just uh, the last uh, couple of minutes, you've underlined uh, uh, the very important big issues, several of them that have been uh, framing the context of political discourse in the last years. But within your research, you also showcase that there is many more issues that uh, social democrats could pick up uh, in order to once again start uh, regaining the trust uh, and that the cleavages are not exactly in the same way as we would have imagined five, ten years ago. Yes. So what social Democrats need to do if they want to be successful again, or if they want to keep their, their position as a, as a main party of the left and the main, a main party of government is they, they need to find an, a bundle of issues that you could call an ideology or worldview, um, that is, that is progressive and looking into the future, but is, is, is coherent in, in itself. And, um, social democrats have struggled doing this over, um, in, in the last 15 years or so. Basically everything post, post new labor when new labor was that coherent, coherent ideology. And then when social democratic parties turned away from new labor, um, they didn't really find a new worldview, if you want to call it like that. Um, the, the issue is, of course, that the, the, the cleavage, as you mentioned, um, and generally the, the issue space in these multi-party democracies that we have, have become so strongly pluralized. People do not fall into these one or two traditional cleavages anymore. And we have seen these new issues such as climate change, immigration, but also changes of um, the welfare state around more investment in, in, in human capital formation, um, education, all these, all these questions. So the, the political space has fundamentally changed. And, and, and the challenge for social democrats is crafting a, a forward-looking agenda um, within this transformed space. From, from the research we have done is that strategically too, um, we find that this has to be a progressive agenda. We don't see a successful future for a social democrat with, let's say, a more left-wing nationalist agenda or gen generally a, a very centrist type of agenda. Um, our, our research shows, um, that these more clear left-wing and, and, and progressive um, combinations are what social democrats very likely need. Um, one additional factor that, that I should mention here is the, the changing demographic patterns of social democratic support in terms of age. Um, so the electorate of social democratic parties in, in, in most European countries has become very old. The strongest support group for the social democrats in Germany is the, the group of the 70-plus-year-olds. And young people don't vote for social democratic parties anymore. And so 
social democratic parties need to craft a, an, an appeal, um, a programmatic appeal that also gets young people back to supporting these parties. And again, um, if you, if you, if you look at what young people care about at the moment, then it is clear that this needs to be a, a progressive and, and, and green agenda to a certain degree. And what about the old uh, cleavage? I mean, it has been repeated very often that the social democrats win when they are strong on socioeconomic issues, uh, um, not when they enter the culture issues that has been the sort of very clear demarcation lines or where to la- run successful battles. But uh, you've mentioned yourself, East and West. It seems that this, those debates are incredibly intertwined these days, right? I mean, you talk about uh, women rights, you talk about them in the context of both cultural but also political, but also a socioeconomic dimension, right? Yes. So, so this distinction between, let's say, material and post-material issue really doesn't, doesn't help us understanding why people, um, vote the way they do and, and, and how we can, disint- we can't just cannot disentangle, as you just said, these topics, like it's also how people look at the welfare state has a strongly cultural dis- dimension in terms of if you look at it more as universalist or particularist. So the the time when politics was just about economics, a this time never existed in that way. But maybe there was a period from let's say the end of the Second World War to the 1960 was really predominantly of, of about economics. That's not going to come back. Um, and and maybe the, we have reasons to believe that this is, would be good for social democrats if it were just about the economy. Um, but that's not going to happen. And many of these so-called cultural issues are fundamental questions of social justice gender equality, uh, LGBT rights, racism, and so on, are issues that are fundamental questions of social justice, which is part of a social democratic agenda. And so even if trade-offs are involved with these issues, I think it's clear um, that a social democratic party of the future that wants to be the main force of the left and wants to regain support among younger voters needs to be a progressive force on these social justice issues as well. And let me add another question, because uh, you are running a podcast transformation of European politics. Of course, we have uh, just ended the new cycle, which will lead us for the next one and a half year ahead of the next European elections. So what about uh, Europe in this constellation? So what is the connection between the European elections, uh, social democracy and the voters in this triangle? We know that it has been uh, for a very long time, the second uh, order type of the elections. We know that the voters tend to also see it as a little bit of a referenda to the national politics. But it seems things have changed because of COVID, because of the war at the doorstep. Uh, all these things have mattered. So what do you think we can expect about the dynamics and what would be the smart, progressive, forward-looking way to approach the issue of Europe these days? I think this is a, this is a very good question. And if you look at the last European Parliament election, that was really the big moment for the radical right. Um, this was kind of the first post-so-called refugee crisis, uh, European Parliament election in 2019. Um, and it was really that, that, that the moment when we saw a massive increase in the support, um, for, uh, for the radical right. And this has helped these parties really also then to nationally, um, become more established forces. As you said, right, we had some big European moments in terms of joint policy. We, of course, have the joint threat to Europe um, that is posed by by Russia's invasion in um, in Ukraine. So you could say that these should be good good times for Europe. The problem remains, of course, with part political parties that have a strong nationalized 
outlook on on politics still and and we still don't have European Parliament elections where we really have these joint crafted European agendas of of progressives at least so much to, to a much smaller degree I think that the challenges are supranational challenges it's, it's clear it is obvious right it starts with it starts with that war and covid climate change all of these moments have shown how answers need to be supranational or need to be need to be European but I think what what we're we're lacking is tangible policies for European voters that unite these voters. So in, in the, the parties propose policies that you need Europe for to tell people this is what we compete over. And this is this is a truly European policy issue. And we need Europe for this. And this is what we want to use Europe for um, to change your life. And this is this the same or at least similar for someone in Spain as for someone in in Estonia um, and in, in in Ireland and I think we still see too little of this and we still see too much of Europe is guaranteeing peace for everyone which is of course true to a, to a certain degree um but this is this is this is not tangible and of course uh, for, for for younger generation um this this feels very different than than for people when uh, when the first let's say European parliament election happened it sounds to me you are arguing for a very pragmatic practical progressivism oh uh, you always have to be careful with this with social democrats because then you end up with these like here here our our 15 point plan to to do x um so it, no i'm i'm arguing for concrete policies that are anchored in a perception of a European demos. Um, th- this is what I would argue for. But of course, what, you always need to package these in, um, in, 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 in let's say, in, in an ideology or in, uh, in a world where, as I said before. Harry, thank you so very much uh, for just in 15 minutes encapsulating the main dilemmas of uh, not only uh, political choices that are in front of the European electorate, uh, but also some of the most pertinent questions that are in front of the academic community when following and while looking at the different political transformations. For those listeners who have joined us today, uh, more can be found within the next left uh, research program lectures, as also do not hesitate to look for podcast transformation of European politics that our special guest today, Tariq Abu Chadi, professor at uh, the Nuffield College in Oxford, is running personally. Thank you very much, Tariq, for your time, your ideas and inspiration uh, when it comes to the future horizon of this debate. Thank you. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FEPSTalks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned. <laughs>